Well, do you remember this story? There was a guy, Eli Melech, who had his two sons, Chilion and Melon, who were, uh, they all traveled down to Moab because there was a famine in Israel. They were from Bethlehem. They went down there to live. They were going to be there a short time. They ended up being there 10 years. And in that time, they got brides. But then all three of the men died. And the three ladies were left. And Naomi told the two Moabite wives, go now, go back to your families. One did, Orpah. But another one, Ruth, absolutely would not. And we have the beautiful poetry of chapter one. No, I will not leave you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lie, I will lie. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And, and the Lord help us all if I do anything but death part us too. And so she came back to Bethlehem. And uh, of course, being a foreigner uh, is, is not a good thing in any of the countries at this time, but Israel in particular was told not to intermarry with the other nations. So, um, you know, how would it be looked on? But remember, this is during the time of the judges. And in the judges, people didn't really know God. They didn't know his law. We're going to find out here that there were some bright spots. There's some who did. Very few, but some did. And, and so they really weren't probably even aware <laughs> to the degree they should have that this Moabitess woman wouldn't be accepted into the household of God because they just don't know God nor his word. And uh, anyway... Ruth said, hey, Naomi, we're back in Bethlehem, we're poor. And in that culture, the orphans and widows and those in poverty could go and they could glean behind the harvesters. If you go back, the farmers were told to not harvest the corner of their fields. And they had one swipe at it. So if you had a tomato field, you had one chance to pick the tomatoes. Any tomatoes left, you couldn't go back and reharvest it. And with the barley harvest, if they dropped some as they were taking it to the cart, or uh, if they left a, a spot in the field, it was for the poor to stand around and hope for somebody to drop some and, and, and get a little bit of harvest in the midst of their poverty. And Ruth was not too prideful to do that. And she did go. And and she didn't realize it, but she picked the right field, the field of, field of a guy by the name of Boaz, who ended up being a relative of her dead husband. She had no idea. But Boaz, when he inquired about who is this, she's like, ah, that's my relative. That's the daughter-in-law of my relative, Naomi. And he looked with favor on her and, and told the guys to not harass her and, and to drop a little accidentally, but purposely for her to have plenty to take home. And then he eventually said, you know, I, I want you to hang out with my female employees for safety and be protected. And when Naomi saw the great amount that she brought back from the fields, Naomi's like, what's going on? And Ruth told her and she says, for the first time, blessed be the Lord. God's looked on favor with me because Leaving Israel was not God's will. Going into the land of the 
Gentiles, to live as a Gentile for a decade was not God's will. And so she was experiencing the difficulties of not being under God's spout where the blessings flow out. So often people can blame God. Why did you leave me? Why didn't you help me? Why didn't you bless me? And God says, I never moved. I'm still walking straight. You're the one that veered off from me. Just come back. And, and you know, the sheep get on the hill, hills of the shepherd. And, and you'll see the blessings from the shepherd come back. Listen what Naomi saw. Well, as time went by, the harvest season going on, Naomi and Boaz got to know each other and had a great deep respect for each other and their character, their godly character. And um, we ended last chapter. It was sort of like a sitcom or not a sitcom, but a, a series, a TV series. And you know how they just cut you off and you got to wait a whole week for the next one? This is the way it's going to happen. There's going to be a blast, and then we're all going to rapture out of here. Just wanted to wake you up. You never know the day or the hour. What's going on back there, guys? Okay, keep Craig away from the soundboard during the sermon. He's looking red, so I know it's him. But uh, anyway... Never know what's going to happen. This is why you want to come live. Um, At home, they're actually having heart attacks and calling ambulances. But um, anyway, um, the last chapter ended where Ruth puts her garment over the feet of Boaz and says, I know you're my Goel. I understand there's a system And in this system, this Jewish system, you have rights to take me as bride. And and he put his robe over her and said, yes, I would love to do that, but I can't because there is a closer relative than I. So he'd been checking it out. He had done his homework. He was an older guy, and I I think he he wasn't going to pursue this, thinking that he would be a burden Uh, upon Ruth when she had younger perspectives, uh, possibilities out there, richer men. And and she's like, nope, I I don't want any of them. I want you. And he's like, okay. And remember, Boaz means swiftness. And so she goes home and tells Naomi, and Naomi says, take a rest. Just be at peace and take a rest. This guy won't sleep until he has gotten you as his bride. Now, he did say to her, please don't tell anybody else. Why? Because he had a sneaky plan. And it was important that he was able to take this near relative by surprise. So we come to chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relatives of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now when we go to Israel, we go to one area called Dan. And it's in the mountains above Galilee. And it's known, first of all, for the oldest gate in the world. 
Going back, talking about a gate that Abraham went through. But right next to that, they have sort of rebuilt a small city. And, and the wall, I don't know, maybe five, six feet high. And it's sort of a maze going into the city. Has several turns. And all along the wall on both sides is a place to sit. And this is where the leaders of the city would be. They could keep an eye on who's coming out, who's going in. But it was also sort of the courtroom of the day. So if you had any legal business, you would just go and try to talk to one of the elders uh, of, of the area and get the business done. Now, interesting here, this is the first time we discover this, but evidently the quorum was 10. By the way, if you know about the Jewish synagogue, they also now require a minimum of 10 men to have an actual synagogue service. So a lot of times there's like six of them. They're like, hey, everybody's got to go out and find somebody. And they all come back in half an hour and see if they've been successful. If not, they go back out until they can get 10. This is where it comes from. This verse right here. And so he, he makes sure that he hits the timing where there would be a quorum of elders saying, hey, I need you guys to stick around here. And then this totally unsuspecting relative of his, hey, brother, come on over and sit down. How's it going? What's, what's happening? Way in his commentary says this about the city gate. It's a kind of an outdoor court, a place where judicial matters were resolved by the elders and those who had earned the confidence and respect of the people, a place of business as a kind of forum of public meeting. And so he says to this close relative, the word goel in the Hebrew that we've been studying. And, and he sort of has an advantage on him because he, he doesn't know, I mean, Evidently, Boaz had quite some time to calculate this and think this out. And he knew exactly uh, that he was second in line, not first in line. And uh, Ruth had kept it quiet. So when Boaz was sitting there, he had the quorum of elders. He, he's able to do a sneak attack on this kinsman redeemer. What's the old quote? All is fair in love and war, right? So... But that seems a little sneaky. It seems a little crooked. Well, hey, it's about love. It's all fair in love and war. So in verse 3 and 4, Then he said to the close relative, the Goel, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you do not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none but you in to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So he, he's not being sly. He just says right up front, this is the law. This is the way it works. And um, one of us need to get on this. And if you're wanting to get on this, I totally respect it. You're first in line. And so the, the man, <clears throat> hearing for the first time, uh, again, sort of uh, blindsided by this, 
is like, wow, I, I didn't know. Now, I wonder if the guy didn't even know the Bible. <laughs> Maybe he knew, you know, sort of, kind of, the, the, what it said in the Bible, what it said in the law. But he, he's taking Boaz's word for it, saying, hey, you could get this land. And he's like, wow, I, I had no idea. This is my lucky day. So in verse 5, Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetrate the name of the dead through his inheritance. So the guy's first response is, yeah, I'll redeem it. I want the land. We talked about this last week, that when the children of Israel came into the promised land, the 12 tribes got certain sections, but then within the tribes, each of the families got the sections, and it was theirs forever. Now, it could be lost for a maximum of 50 years until the year of Jubilee. At the year of Jubilee, everything went back to its original families. And so if you were to lease somebody's property, it might be one year, it might be 50 years. You got to figure that out when the year of Jubilee was coming. So when Eli Melech left, he leased his land out to whoever gets the money to take with him to go to Moab. And, and so this guy is the possessor, but a Goel, a next kinman, can pay that guy whatever it was he was owed, according to what the elders thought. And he could get the land back for the family's sake. And so when the guy understood it was just about getting some property back, he's like, yes, I'm on that. And, and then Boaz now, you know, starts reading to him the fine print. <laughs> yes. And whoever possesses that land has the responsibility, not just for the property, but for the people. And so whoever possesses that also gets Ruth and needs to marry her. And whatever kids you and Ruth have is actually not your son. It's actually the son of her dead husband. It won't be your son. It'll be his son. And in his name, he will live. And so he can continue on that particular family within the tribe's name. And to raise up kids. So it's for, it's for property, yes, but it's also for persons and also for posterity. All these duties went together as the goel in this case. Well, in verse 6, the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. So now the guy's like scared, it sounds like. He's like, oh boy, no, no, I take it back. You guys, elders, I take it back. It was just said a couple of minutes ago. Oh, too late, buddy. You, you already said you would do it. Can't go back on your word now. And he's like, bail me out of this, Boaz. Bail me out of this. You'll do it for me, right? You'll, you'll, you'll step up and do it, right? He says, I can't because of the inheritance. He probably already had grown sons and they probably already had their allotments. And now if he were to have another son, probably his first wife wouldn't like that too much. You know, that's a whole nother issue, huh? Hey, honey, guess what? I got somebody, I got my new wife I'd like to introduce you to. Um, you know, that, that Jewish mama might go off on him. 
and uh, with a pan and chase them around for a while. So he's like, yeah, you know, the, the, the person's thing, the property thing, I love the person's thing. No, that, that's too much. You need to bail me out. So Boaz is not only getting what he wants, he's getting the guy to beg him to do it. Very smart businessman indeed. And so redeem it for yourself. David Guzik says this, because of Boaz wise, perhaps shrewd, way of framing the occasion, this was the first time the nearer kinsman considered this. And it was pretty big question to take it all at once. When it was just a matter of property, it was easy to decide on it. But if it was a matter of taking Ruth of his wife, that was another matter. So um, this guy, he's hearing about it for the first time. He's like, wow, yeah, knee-jerk reaction? Sure. That's, I didn't even know I was in line. And yeah, that's, that's my responsibility. I'll, I'll redeem the property. And oh, yeah, by the way, you got to marry Ruth and raise up kids. To, what? Hold it. You know, his, his mind is just spinning out, going, hold it. This is way too quick. Which was Boaz's plan all along to sort of overwhelm it all at once, not to give him time to ponder and think about it and process it, but to blindside him into Boaz being able to step up. This is all the plan. Verse seven and eight now. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming the engaging to confirm anything. One man took off a sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. So as you're reading Ruth, it sounds like the writer of this story is saying to the Jews, back in the old days, not something we're practicing currently. So when you look at the first five books of the Bible, there was definitely things that would not remain in the nation of Israel by the way they were existing. And that was God's plan, I believe. So there were, there were various things. So that, you know, there's a whole set of the law when you're out in battle. You know, before you go poop, you got to dig a hole. And then after you're done pooping in that hole, you got to bury it up. Why? Because God is holy and he walks in the midst of the camp. That was the reasoning. Now, I, I got a feeling that pretty much everybody eventually did that. They didn't need some command from God. But at that time, that was the case. There's a missionary book I read as a teenager called Ruko. And, and the demons of various village would tell these village people in, out in the Amazon rainforest the craziest things to kill them. And one of them, they had told the people that the gods would be insulted if they ever covered up their poop. And that the gods wanted them to keep all the poop all around their house. And so the village smelled like a bunch of poop. And people had poop piled up all around their huts. And it was just literally killing kids, killing people, and just a miserable way to live. 
But man, that was so important for them to do, to, to not anger the demons, in essence, and to please the gods. Some weird stuff. And so some of the law is on ceremonial laws where you really had to have a, a, a tabernacle, at least, or a temple. Um, and so you have a lot of ceremonial laws. And then, of course, you have a lot of other sacrificial laws, which, again, you have to have a temple. And if you look back in, in Israel's history, they had many times, including the last 2,000 years, where they have not had a temple where they've not had a sacrificial system. So a big percentage of the law, it could be used, or, you know, as you look at the, the various um, systems of government, they would take it over rather than the priest. So when you had the season of the judges, the judges did what the priests would have done had there been priests. And then you have the time of the kings, and the king set up a whole system of government that pretty much ruled out the need for any of the Levites to be a part of the civil system. But when you read the law, the priests are the civil system. God is king and the priest, the high priest and all his sons and all those Levites are basically the civil system being rented. And it, that didn't happen very often at all, very, very little. So this is sort of probably seen by Jews in most generations as sort of like a, an old tradition thing that they might have done back when they left Egypt. And maybe they did it for a while uh, under the time of the judges, but probably this wasn't the case happening during the time of the kings or any time afterwards. And so they're sort of telling the Jews, hey, you guys probably are completely unaware about this, but there used to be this custom, and, uh, and this is the way it went. Now, we know about it in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elder of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders. Notice, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has his sandal removed. Which I've got a feeling probably in the Hebrew language, it had a little, you know, probably a pun. Probably had a couple meetings going on. But in our culture, it just doesn't really work in our language whatsoever. But in here, it was probably a, a euphemism for something else on top of that, to be somebody who's not honorable, that doesn't have a great character. I'm glad in this story that they've lightened up a bit. It, it's not so serious. He doesn't get spit in his face. 
he uh, gets the sandal removed, but it doesn't seem to be that dishonorable of a thing. They do purposely don't mention his name. And I think that was to, to not dishonor the guy or his family or his tribe for, for years to come, no doubt. And so it seems to be not such an intense thing here in Ruth as we read about in Deuteronomy. And in verse 9 and 10, So Boaz said to the elders and all the people who are witness this day that I have bought all that Elimelech and all his Chilion and Malon from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malone, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his possession at the gate. You are witnesses this day. So he says to all the elders, and right now you got a whole big crowd of people showing up, probably a little unusual, but uh, it, it Inquiring minds are wanting to know. And so now you've got this whole group of people in on the conversation. And, and he says to these elders and to all these people around, you guys are witnesses. This is law. This is, this is a done deal. You know, this go out in front of me, can't come back years later going, hey, you cheated me. Or hey, you got in front of me. Or hey, you didn't, you didn't let me know what was going on and, and uh, you know, I, I want this undone or I want you to have to pay reparations because of uh, the wrong that you did to me. He's like, nope. And he makes it clear. I'm going to fulfill all the requirements of the law to Ruth's dead's husband, Meholon. I'm going to raise up kids and they're going to be to his name and they will get his inheritance. And so all of these things that probably most Jews wouldn't want to do. Probably didn't really know Malone very well, didn't know Chilion really well. It doesn't sound like my Melech was a, a, a very godly guy. He had no problem leaving the land of promise and go to, to live in a cursed pagan nation of Moab next door. So there, there, there could have been a lot of people who were just like, yeah, I understand that's what I should do, but I'm just not going to do it because I really don't want to do it. That's a lot of effort on my part for somebody I really don't know or somebody I know but don't really respect or like. But here he's saying, I am going to do this and I'm going to fulfill every aspect of it, leaving no stone unturned. Why is that so important? Because Jesus, as we're going to learn, our kinsman redeemer, our Goel, he fulfilled the law. Matter of fact, in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but what? To fulfill. Jesus is the only man who ever kept all the law. Pretty radical, huh? He's the only man that's ever lived that did not break the law. He actually obeyed every law. Colossians 2.14 says, now that he's fulfilled it, he wants to destroy it. This is what he did in Colossians 2.14, having wiped out the handwritings of requirements that was against us. That's the law. Read Romans 7. 
which was contrary to us, our human nature cannot obey, even the simplest of laws. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the cross did a lot more for us than we knew, maybe. Yes, he paid, took all our sins upon himself, and he paid for those sins. His blood was shed to cleanse us from all present and future sins. He, he killed our sin nature by circumcising our heart with the Holy Spirit, being able to come and live in us as the Holy Spirit used to be able to come and live in the Holy of Holies. He now can live in us and we are the Holy of Holies. And above all of this, he took the law, he fulfilled it, and then he destroyed it. We are no longer under the law, but we're under grace. I mean, it's a great thing not to be under the law. But again, the Lord always does above and beyond all we could ask or think. We're not under law, but we're under what? Grace. God's giving us blessings that we don't deserve. And then, of course, of his fullness, of Jesus' fullness, we've all received. What? Grace upon grace. So we're not just under the law, but we're under grace upon grace. All that you need and more, all the blessings you don't deserve and more, and then again for a second time. And so the law is fulfilled. We see that here in Boaz, and it's such a perfect prophecy of of what the Goel would do for the whole world in Christ. So then Ruth, this Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife. When Ruth said to Naomi, I'm going to follow you and be with you until one of us or both of us die. I do not think she thought she had a great future. I think Ruth was basically thinking, I can't leave you. I'm basically committed to a life of hardship with a couple of widows growing old. In, in, in this culture, women had no rights. They couldn't own anything. They couldn't work. They, they really had almost no way to, to get remarried. It was basically, I think Ruth thought, I'm, I'm doomed to a very hard life along with Naomi, who it's, ever since I've known her for the last 10 years, living in Moab, she's had nothing but a hard life and, you know, relatives dying one after the next after the next, nobody having kids and, and just, but yet, what did she say? Your God shall be my God. And when we see Ruth coming back to the land, she begins to know about the culture, know about what God's word gives her provisions for the poor. She learns about the Goel. And, and Boaz also was a man who knew the word, who said, yes, I'm aware of the Goel, and yes, I know I'm in line. There's one guy in front. She seems to be somebody who's following the word, even when probably most of the Jews weren't. And what do we find always the case when we begin to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, God begins to add all this earth stuff, what we're going to eat and drink and wear. He adds that back unto us. 
And so we see this promise happening to Ruth. She's not going to live a life of a widow without children. She's not going to live a life of poverty and hardship and struggle along with her mother-in-law, Naomi. God comes in and there's the prince and the princess in this story. And Ruth is going to be redeemed by Boaz, her Goel. Well, in verse 11 and 12, so all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses and the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. We talked about that Ephrathah before, probably the, the county name for the area around Bethlehem. And it's an important Word in the prophecy of Micah about the babe being born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Well, in verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Now, this is interesting. Verse the people and the elders, everybody says, yep, we're all witnesses. You've got basically a large group of people here who confirm that you have done everything according to the law. And the people begin to pronounce a blessing on Boaz. Now understand, the Jews took this seriously. Remember in number six, God gives a command to the priest and he said, hey, when you put your blessings on the people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. The Lord give you peace. When you pronounce this blessing, it says, and God will bless them. And so they, they didn't say, oh, you know, you know, love and wishes, <laughs> thoughts and prayer. You know, they, they really believed that they all of one heart are saying, man, we're, we're sensing God's doing something here. We're sensing that God's at work here. This is a unique thing. This is a powerful thing. Ruth is an amazing lady. She left her country and she's taking care of Naomi, probably sentencing her life to a life of poverty and hardship with no family. And then after Naomi dies, she's going to be this alone Moabite woman with no connections. She, she, she's basically made a choice out of a love for her mother-in-law And man, we respect that. We honor her. And now we see you, Boaz. You you are wanting to do God's will, even though that means for you to maybe else wants to do, and that's not to have. And so they just said, man, bless you. Bless you, Boaz. And, and, And may... These women now come into your house, be like Rachel and Leah. Do you guys remember that story? (laughs) These two sisters that fighting with each other. Remember the story, Jacob? He's like, oh yeah, I love Leah. And then, uh, or excuse me, Rachel. And then he finds out on his, the older ugly sister. And he's like, ah, you know, and and Laban says, oh yeah, yeah. You know, that's our role. Got to marry the older sister first. But work another seven years and I'll throw the other one. You can have them both. And so he's got two wives all at once and they're sisters. 
I mean, this was going to be a house with friction, and boy, it was. And you guys remember the story? They had handmaidens, and they weren't having enough kids, so they started giving Jacob the, the handmaidens. And, and all of a sudden, 13 kids between the two women and the handmaidens, which because it was the, when the handmaiden was giving birth, they would catch the baby. It was counted in this culture as if it were their baby. So in the culture, it looked like just the two women, the handmaids were irrelevant. They had all the children of Jacob. So again, this is an interesting story when you start to say, well, you know, you got to have this pure Jewish race, you know, God bless everybody who's in this pure Jewish race of Abraham. Well, you read the Old Testament, you find out there's never been a real pure race of, of Abraham. There's been a very weird stories going on. And a couple of these maids that were not Jews had a number of the 12 tribes of Israel but yet they were counted. So between these two women, they had 13 kids, ultimately. And, uh, but they're just looking back on it now and just saying, hey, may, may you guys be blessed. So it sounds almost like maybe he does have another wife. And, and Ruth, being combined with the other wife, you know, may your two wives have just a lot of kids. Maybe that's insinuating on that, maybe not. But then there's a second blessing. The second blessing is, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Now, this is, again, a very weird story. Do you remember Judah had two kids? The oldest son, Ur, he was a wicked man and God killed him. And then Onan would not. He'd have sex with Tamar, but he wouldn't um, go into her with semen, so he spilt it on the ground, and so God killed him. And then they were waiting around to have another son, but the time that would happen, she would be much older than the next son. And so they did have another son. And when it finally came time, they said, no, no, no way, man. This lady's bad news. We're not going to give our third son to her. And so they just sort of, you know, kept promising her things. And, and she realized, hey, they're never going to give me their, their son to have kids. And so she dressed up like a prostitute and seduced Judah and Anyway, she ended up getting pregnant by her father-in-law. Sort of a, a very messy story, not one you'd want to tell around the Thanksgiving table. Um, and, and, but yet, she did have a son with Judah. And she ended up having twins, a matter of fact. And Tamar, through her father-in-law, had these twins. And an interesting story in Genesis 38 she was giving birth to the two twins. Wham, this arm comes out. And the midwife says, well, that's the firstborn. She ties a string around his arm to signify he came out first. But yet he didn't come out first. His hand went back inside. And then all of a sudden, Perez passes up his brother and pops out and actually gets born first. And so... Uh, his brother was called Zerah, which is not a part of the lineage. But Perez, they named him Perez because his name means breach breaker. He broke through and got the rights of the firstborn. He didn't let life stand in his way. He was tough. He was a leader. He was successful. 
And even in the womb, he stepped on his, his brother going, I'm not going to be the second kid. You're going to be the second kid. Wham! And he comes out first. And so the way they looked at that was like, wow, man, this guy's got initiative uh, before he's even born. He comes out, out of the womb, a breach breaker, and, and, and continues on to life in that way. And so may whoever's your son be a breach breaker or one of your grandkids from that son be a breach breaker, which we know would be David, who indeed was a breach breaker. Well, in Ruth 4.13 now, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her con uh, conception and she bore a son. You know what? This was never taken for granted. This was never like, it's a done deal. We'll have several kids. Several of them will be boys. It's a done deal. No. They, they know having kids, having kids that live past infancy, having a son, not a bunch of daughters, all of that was going to be the hand of God's blessing upon them if such a thing happened. And it did happen. And they saw it as God's blessing upon their life because there's a lot of other ways it could have went and not a good ending. Well, in Ruth 4, verse 14 to 16, then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. May his name be famous in Israel. There it is. God honoring their blessing. And may he be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to her. So she wasn't too old. <laughs> um, so the first blessing there is, blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a close relative. May his name be famous in Israel. Well, I think we're all witnessing that that blessing did happen, didn't it? Boaz is famous to this day. And so was his lineage. And then also the second blessing they pronounced on Naomi is may he be to your restore of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has bore him. So even though you have two sons that are dead, Naomi, this Moabite girl with her character, with her love for you, it's like this one woman's like having seven sons. Wow. There's just something incredibly special when the character of a person is praised, isn't it? And uh, to be a person of character, it's, it's definitely something that God wants for all of us. So Naomi took the child and she nursed the child. So that tells you that she wasn't too terribly old, but it also signifies it's as if Ruth's child is also her child and that her husband, his name also shall live through this child of Ruth. Well, in verse 17 to 22, also the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi. And they call his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this is interesting. The neighbor ended up naming him. It's like, wow, some neighbor, some 
they must have really liked, they must have been good neighbors. It's like, oh yeah, my neighbor named him. Um, a very important person in history. And, and, and you know, this, this is where we're going to have fun in heaven. You know, hi, how you doing? Oh, good. Yeah, I was live during the judges. Oh, really? Did you know Ruth? She was my neighbor. No way. Did you name Obed? Yeah, that was me. That was me. I named Obed. Yeah. Wow. Hey, come get over here. This is the guy, you know. It's going to be fun to meet some of these people. So this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hazron. Hazron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Solomon, not Solomon, but Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. So, how famous did they become? The father of Jesse, the father of David. Kidner, in his commentary, says this, God's hand is all over history. God's work out his purposes, generation after generation. Limited as we are in one lifetime, each of us sees so little of what happens. A genealogy is a striking way of bringing before us the continuity of God's purpose through the ages. The process of history is not haphazard. There is a purpose in all things, and the purpose is the purpose of God. So I just want to, I sort of want to talk two sides here of this coin. There are a lot of people, you can look on YouTube, very famous individuals that were in a Calvinistic way of looking at God in the Bible who have completely walked away from God. And they all say, Basically, God's destined everything. It doesn't matter if I do or don't do or pray or don't pray or believe or don't believe. If I'm one of the elect, God's going to get me there. And then they say this. If God wants me to obey him, then he needs to do for me what he did to Jonah. He needs to do for me what he did for Paul. Jesus himself needs to come and tell me to be born again. Jesus needs to speak from the heavens and say my name and tell me to repent, blind me, and, and cause me to believe. And if God forcefully causes me like Paul to get converted, then I'll be converted. If he doesn't do that, if he doesn't cause my donkey to speak to me like Balaam, then it's on God. I was never the elect, and I never was going to be the elect. Even though I was trying to be a Christian and failing, failing, trying to be a Christian, failing, failing, I finally said, why am I causing such consternation upon myself? I'll just quit trying to serve the Lord because whoever's going to get saved is going to get saved. Whoever's not going to get saved is not going to get saved. God's going to do whatever God's going to do, whether I pray or don't pray, whether I obey or don't, or don't obey, whether I go to church or don't go to church, whether I share my faith or don't share my faith, whether I seek God or don't seek God. It doesn't matter. God's got it all destined out. This, this is atheism. You, you can't really be an atheist unless you believe God has fatalistic, deterministically programmed all things to be the way they are. And we become irrelevant. 
We're just little mannequins being pulled by the strings. And so if we walk over here, it's because God's, you know, got the strings and we're all a bunch of puppets and it's all going to happen the way God destined it to happen. That's completely untrue. You do not read through the Bible and get that concept of God whatsoever. Your will is your will. And you can make wise choices. You can make foolish choices. Make wise choices, you'll be blessed by them. Make foolish choices, you'll suffer them. And you can't say, oh man, I've got four days in a row making wise choices, so the fifth day is a gimme. I'll make all wise wise choices also on the fifth day. What's going to (laughs) happen? You've got to put complete energy and focus on today and today only. What's God required of you, oh man, but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God, to say, God, I want to do what you want me to do. And, and Lord, give me the ability to be filled with your spirit. Give me the strength to crucify my flesh with his passions, desires. And, and Lord, I want to walk through the narrow gate that leads to life. And, and Lord, hedge me in behind and before. And we now pray without ceasing. We meditate on his word day and night. We put on the whole armor of God to fight against the wiles of the devil. And, and we make it through a day fighting, biting, clawing. And hopefully we can lay our heads on the pillow at night having not committed some great sin. Having not sowed to the flesh and we're going to reap the whirlwind. And maybe even the opposite. We bore good fruit. And we can put our head on the pillow and go, God, by your grace, I obeyed. By your grace, I shared the Lord with people. By your grace, I sought you in prayer and in the word. And, and guess what? Tomorrow starts all over again. We deny ourselves again tomorrow. Take up the cross again tomorrow. And it's another day. That's why Jesus said, don't, don't try to string a bunch of days together. Jesus says in Matthew 5, just take on one day. There's enough trials and problems and battles in one day to to just take a day at a time. And you've been living for God a year and and trying to live for him and, and successfully so for the most part. And you say, well, now this year, I just won't put that same effort into it, but I'll get the same result. I won't walk as obediently, but I'll, get, I'll be just as fruitful. Is that going to be true? Well, if you live for God really good a year, it sort of melds into the next year. So you can use half effort and still maintain the fruitfulness that you had in the year when you really sought God hard. Is that true? It's just not true. The yesterday doesn't bleed into today. Today is a whole new day, whole new challenge. Probably demons you've never heard of or seen before are going to show up and test their, their sword against you. <laughs> and, and, and so, no, we're complete free-willed agents and the future is not written. It's to you and your free will what will be written. Now, what are we seeing here? That God who does know the beginning and does know the end, he has a string, a thread of his divine will throughout history. 
So he's going to put his thumb on the scale when he needs to to make sure that his divine plan is carried out. So when Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, God put his thumb on the scale. Now what did we learn in the book of Esther? The opposite. Mordecai told Esther the opposite. If, and, and where was it? About the same location. It was the, the nation of the Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians. Their capital was right there. Iraq, Babylon, Iran, Assyria, Nineveh, they're all right there in the same area. So here's Esther, almost not too far from where Jonah was in Nineveh, and, and says, you've got the choice whether you'll go through with this. And he says to her plainly, if you don't do it, you will miss out, but God will just raise another person up to do what you should have done, and you'll miss out on the blessing of it. Boy, that doesn't sound like Jonah at all. But God saw the thread, and it was essential that Jonah tell the story, and Jonah with his hard heart be the one, so we could all see that even if we go out and we preach mean, and we preach hoping people won't believe, <laughs> even if we're the opposite of a good witness, God's word is so powerful, people will still get saved. So it's to take the pressure off us. It's not about us. Not about my words. It's not about my persuasion. It's not my, about my selling Christianity and, and taking the, the person who doesn't really want to, you know, the Eskimo that doesn't want to buy ice and he leaves with 10 pounds of ice. It, it's not about us. It's about, it's about God's word is so powerful. We could be the opposite of what we should be and a whole nation can still get saved. So here we see that it was essential that David come through a grandma who's a Moabitess. And they end up going back in time to 100 years earlier to bring about and say, oh, and I hope you're like Tamar. What? And her son Perez. That's a part of the history we just hope people will forget and just say, what happened between a couple hundred years? We don't talk about that couple hundred years. It was sort of dark time in the family history. That's all you need to know. Not the case. You, you, you got this lady Tamar who tricked her father-in-law to have sex with her. And before that, you had Lot who had his kids, his daughters got him drunk and seduced him and got pregnant after Sodom and Gomorrah. And and then you, you've got Rahab the harlot from Jericho. She's a lowly prostitute in a very pagan culture. And, and then you've got this gal, Ruth, a Moabitess. And then after that, we're going to have Bathsheba, who wasn't even David's wife righteously. It's interesting. Read Matthew in the genealogy. And it says, and Solomon was born through Uriah's wife. Whew, that's what it says in Matthew 1. It doesn't say David's wife. And she was a Hittite. At least she married Uriah a Hittite, who was, again, a, a pagan nation. What do we get here? We're getting a story that God's the Savior 
of the whole world and a very mixed up, perverted, confused, immoral, unlovely, sinful world. And Christ's bloodline comes from that very weird mixture of a lot of interesting stories. It's interesting that it doesn't say, and may Ruth be blessed. As you read through all these verses, it says, may Naomi's name be great. May sure her name be blessed. May Naomi have children. And may those kids, you know, it keeps mentioning Naomi rather than, and never mentions Ruth. You know, they never really pronounce a clear blessing upon Ruth. They'd say she is a blessing. David Guzik says this, it was fitting that these blessings in the life of Naomi be given so much attention at the end of the book. Naomi was the one whose original returning to the Lord began all this great work of God. If Naomi had not decided to go back to Bethlehem, the land of Israel and the God of Israel, none of this would have happened. And indeed, they did become famous through the great general king David, who would be of the lineage of the greatest king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus, according to the flesh. So let me finish up here. This really is a book to us who have a New Testament and understand it, talking about Christ as our kinsman redeemer. Christ as our Goel. The kinsman redeemer had to be a family member. Jesus was added to humanity, to his eternal deity, so he could be our kinsman and save us. The kinsman redeemer had the duty of buying family members out of slavery. Jesus redeemed us from the slave, slavery of sin and of death. The kinsman redeemer had the duty of buying back land that had been forfeited. Jesus will redeem the earth that mankind sold over Satan. I didn't put it here in the notes, but in Revelation, there, John begins to weep because everybody's weeping because nobody's worthy to open the scroll and unloose the seals. And then John looks, and there is one. It's a lamb that's been slain. And hold, hold it. No, no, it's also a lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, who is it? That's all I see. I see a lamb that's been slain. I see a dead, bloody lamb. And I see a lion who's the tribe of Judah. And he is worthy to open the scrolls. This is the title deed to earth. It had been lost through the sin of Adam and Eve, but now had been bought back the rights of all of mankind through him being the lamb of God and even though he was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer to Ruth, was not motivated by self-interest, but motivated by love for Ruth. Jesus' motivation for redeeming us was his great love for us. Boaz, as kinsman redeemer to Ruth, had to have a plan to redeem Ruth unto himself. And some might have thought the plan to be foolish. Jesus had a plan to redeem us. And some might think the plan foolish. Saving men by dying for them on a cruel cross. What? Yet the plan works so gloriously. Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer to Ruth, took her as his bride. The people Jesus has redeemed are collectively called his bride. In Ephesians 5, 
31 and 32, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. Remember John 17, fathers, I'm in you, you're in me, that they would be in us and we in them in a perfect oneness. This is a mystery, Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In Revelation 21.9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Wow. Lastly, Boaz, as kinsman redeemer to Ruth, provided a glorious destiny for Ruth. Jesus is our redeemer, provides a glorious destiny for us. But it all comes back to this idea that Jesus had to come into human flesh to truly be our kinsman. And because he was also God, he could be our lamb, our substitute, our redeemer. As you read this story, he had to be both. He had to be a kinsman and he also had to be a redeemer. There's a beautiful prophecy as we finish up here in Isaiah 54, verse 4 through 8. The prophecy of Jesus as our Goel. Do not fear, for you are not, you will not be ashamed. Amen? That's often a great fear of people. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts, or the Lord of war, the Lord of armies is his name. And your redeemer, your goel, is the Holy One of Israel. Love that. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. Sound familiar? The book of Ruth here, huh? Like a youthful wife when... You were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Or again, it's the same word, Goel. From eternity, God planned to bring Ruth and Boaz together. Thus make Bethlehem his entrance point for the coming Jesus, the true kinsman redeemer, fully God, fully man. Spiritually, we need to come to Bethlehem and let Jesus redeem us. Amen and amen. Ah, Lord, we come tonight and we sum this up. We look at this at the end and we realize how marvelous, how amazing. We see the thread from the very beginning of time and how you had to put your thumb on the scale to bring about Boaz marrying this Moabitess Ruth who had become the grandmother of David and this little shepherd boy from a bad area of Israel, a poverty area of Israel, there of Bethlehem, kills the lion, kills the bear, kills the giant, becomes the king and then struggles and sins and falls and he's a great comfort to all of us writing the most amazing books in the middle of our Bible, the most amazing chapters in the middle of our Bible, the book of Psalms, and become the great star of the nation throughout history. 
and you desire to come and sit upon the throne of David. And we thank you now that we see things beginning to come together to realize it's no coincidence that we're here tonight. You know every hair upon every one of our heads that you tonight have a message to speak to us, to heal us, to cause us to be drawn near to you and we ask that you would do it. These few minutes that we got left, Lord, just draw us to yourself. We're gonna have just a moment after this song to pray and I encourage you to jump in even if you're on top of each other, just let's cry out and seek God and, and, uh, and believe him for great things and pronounce blessings <laughs> upon our fellowship and upon our area and pronounce belief and faith that mountains would be moved. Mm.